the term intrinsic web design was coined by Jen Simmons a couple of years back. And she was trying to point out that we've been talking about responsive web design for over 10 years now. And while all of the concepts that led to responsive design that we learned from doing responsive design, all of those are still relevant, but the web has changed a lot in those 10 years. So the initial rules of responsive web design as a methodology were that you put percentages on everything. You removed all intrinsic sizing, any sizes that came from the image itself. You would remove that and replace it with a percentage. And that was really useful. But these days, we actually have tools that let us keep the size of an image and use that intrinsic sizing information as part of our layouts. Hi, uh, welcome to PodRocket. I'm Noel, and with us today is Miriam Suzanne. Miriam is an artist, activist, teacher, uh, web developer, and co-creator of Oddbird, Teacup Gorilla, and Grapefruit Lab. Did I get all that right? Yeah, sounds good. <laughs> Hi. Perfect, perfect. Welcome to the podcast. Yeah, yeah, thanks for joining us. I'm, I'm excited for our conversation today. Um, we got so much, so much to get into. Um, yeah, it sounds like you've got a, a, a talk that will have recently been given or is going to be given soon when this airs called Styling the Intrinsic Web. Is that right? Yeah, I gave that a couple of weeks ago at Smashing Magazine or Smashing Conference. Oh, nice. Awesome. Awesome. Very cool. We can kind of kind of cover that and talk about it and, and maybe touch on some high points and dig in a little bit here and there where it makes sense. Um, again, I'm just I'm excited to be chatting. Um, but before we kind of get in the weeds too far, uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, how you got into web development um, and then kind of how your work outside of web dev folds folds back into that kind of web developer ethos? Yeah, sure. Um, that's, uh, I studied theater and creative writing. And um, so here I am <laughs> uh, <laughs> developing websites. Um, yeah, my, uh, my theater company at some point needed a website. And so I had to learn how to build a website. And uh, it was fun. And I had other friends who needed websites for various things. And then my band needed a website. Uh, and people just kept coming to me for websites and paying me for it. Um, and when I moved, I didn't have a theater company anymore actively. So uh, this sort of took over as more and more clients showed up. Um, I still do a lot of theater and writing and making music. Um, I've always enjoyed doing many things at once and trying not to have a career, uh, but like six simultaneous careers. <laughs> uh, and this one happened to take off in a way. So um yeah yeah very cool yeah I, I would say you've you've had some some success uh in this sphere and i was i was doing my homework and i listened to uh a video i think it was the better selves better selves that's your current band is that right uh not currently i i played with them for a couple months here uh but then yeah teacup gorilla is the main one that i'm playing with right now Nice, nice. Were you, I think you were playing bass in the video I watched. Is yeah. that your main instrument? Yeah. Nice. 
rocking the bass lines. I'm into it. Yeah. I'm into it. Very exciting. Um, well, cool. We've got we've got a ton to cover, so I would Great. I could keep, I could talk music for hours, but let's let's talk about CSS first. All right. Um, uh, I guess the the title of the talk is styling the intrinsic web. Um, what is the intrinsic web? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, the term intrinsic web design uh, was coined by um, Jen Simmons a couple of years back. And she was trying to point out that uh, we've been talking about responsive web design for over 10 years now. Uh, and while all of the sort of concepts that led to responsive design uh, and that we learned from doing responsive design, all of those are still relevant, but also the web has changed a lot in those 10 years. Um, so the initial rules of responsive web design as a uh, methodology were that you put percentages on everything. You sort of removed all intrinsic sizing, any sizes that came from the image itself. You would remove that and replace it with a percentage. Uh, and that was really useful. But these days, we actually have tools that let us keep the size of an image and use that intrinsic sizing information as part of our layouts. So with CSS grids and Flexbox, we can play with what's responsive and in what ways, uh, and we can rely on intrinsic information from the elements themselves. Um, and I think a lot of the new specs that we're working on play with that idea, sort of thinking about what do we know from the content and how do we build out from there? So it's, a, it's an evolution of responsive web design, um, but just recognizing that there's this new ability. We don't have to always strip out the intrinsic stuff and force our own responsiveness onto it. We can play back and forth. Yeah. Do you think that that is kind of a, um, a tricky balancing act for devs, especially like new devs in CSS to kind of understand how, how to think about what, um, like what, what elements should be doing that uh, kind of intrinsic uh, in, information, in, informing of how the DOM should end up being rendered? Like, where do you start if you're new and trying to figure out, like, where do I, where do I yield control, um, like, to which elements should be dictating how my layouts end up looking? Yeah, I mean, I would say that's the hard part of CSS generally, um, is, uh, and it's what's new to this medium. Uh, as opposed to print, right? Print, we just force everything into a layout. And on the web, uh, we don't know the size of the screen. We don't know the language. We don't know the writing mode. We don't know the operating system. Um, we don't know the user settings. Uh, so we have to somehow rely on uh, lots of in intrinsic information and also um, preferences and settings and devices. Uh, and so we just fundamentally don't have a lot of control. Um, and to me, that's the, the main thing to learn when learning CSS uh, is there was an article back in 2000, and it used to be that if you mentioned it in a conference, everybody had read it. Uh, but 20 years later, <laughs> uh, I recommend checking it out. Um, uh, it's called The Tao of Web Design. And it's this uh, basically manifesto that we need to think of the web as something that we don't control 
and we need to let go of a lot of control. And um, CSS is sort of designed to help us do this, to say, how little can we style uh, and get roughly the results we want across lots of different devices and browsers and settings and et cetera. So there's no hard and fast rule. There's just sort of um, how much can we let the browser do for us? How much can we let the content tell us? Uh, and whenever possible, give up control. Nice. Awesome. Well, I've, I've, yeah, I'm, we're completely off the outline of the show notes, but I love getting into the philosophical like weeds here. So let's continue and just, just dig in. So the, um, yeah, like, I, I, I do feel like there's there's always kind of been this this push and pull of like um, traditional designers like wanting control over everything, especially like those with a pr- print media background. Like, no, it needs to look like this. This is our brand. This is our style guide. Like, this is how things have been laid out. And that's always felt a little bit at odds with like the, the foundations of the web or like the guiding principles that powered like markup and CSS and stuff and like what they were trying to do in just like portraying information in an easy to parse way. Um, how, like how, when, I don't know, when, when, when thinking about CSS, like the developer probably ends up kind of being the balancing act there a lot of the time, right? Like playing that, that middleman. Um, how do we like, how do you go about thinking about like having, um, like branding style personality that you want to portray, but also again, making sure that we can, um, you know, be accessible for all these various, like user needs, device sizes, browsers, like any, any, anything under the sun. Cause again, the web is in like this weird spot where we're trying to make it work for everyone. How do you, how do you, how do you walk that line without like losing your mind? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I enjoy it. This is part of, this is part of what attracted me to CSS in the first place. Um, coming out of this live performance background and thinking, you know, what the web feels like a live performance to me. It's different every time. There's too many factors. Uh, we don't have control, um, but we we play the set. Uh, we do the show, you know, and it's it's different on each stage. It's different uh, depending on how the audience is reacting. Um, so to me, that's fun, <laughs> and that's how I don't lose my mind. Uh, is like I enjoy that uh, aspect of it. So I I recommend enjoying it. But <laughs> if you don't, um, I mean, that tension is recognized in CSS. So if you look at the original proposal for why we have a cascade, it's because there's a tension between different needs in the system. Um, The browser and device are going to have certain needs. uh, The users are going to have certain needs. And web authors are going to have certain needs. Um, And that tension needs a balance. And the cascade is there to provide us that balance. It's a way of weighing who's who takes priority in what cases um and we sort of often just think about our own little part of the cascade and ignore the other parts of it but uh yeah i like to think about that tension um and i don't know if there's a solid answer to how to do that but it's uh always um well okay i would say the CSS is a language that's based in semantics. I mean, this is true of declarative languages generally. Um, We're not just telling the browser what to do. We're telling the browser why. Uh, So um, we could say 
font size 16 pixels. We could say font size 1M. In a lot of cases, those might be the same size, but they mean different things. Uh, and so to me, CSS is like, like it's easy to write poetry. It's hard to write good poetry. CSS is the, the same sort of thing. It's like uh, we can say anything to force the style to be what we want, but can we say it in a way that is meaningful and reflects what we're intending to do. Uh, and using the tools as they're provided, CSS Grid does one thing, Flexbox does something slightly different. We can get the same end result from them on our screen, but can we do it in a way that expresses what we mean most elegantly? Enjoying the podcast? Consider hitting that follow button for even more great episodes. So I, I, I want to dig into uh, like the cascade and orders and stuff a little bit, but before we do that, I want to I want to I want to talk a little bit more about something you said there. Maybe maybe you kind of push back on this idea, and I'm sure you'll have a, a you know a opinionated view here. Um, but I think that some some I don't know like information purists would come back and be like, well, if there's all these ways that we can be doing things with CSS and CSS feels like writing poetry, maybe it isn't the best tool for the job because it shouldn't take a poet to make a website that's like beautiful and also easy to to use, right? Like it should be a simple thing. Do you do you think there's any, any merit to that argument? Like is CSS trying to do too much? Have we kind of built this whole, you know, web paradigm on these technologies that maybe have been retrofitted to do something that was never really what they intended to be used for? Uh, no, I mean, I would say you could make the, a counter argument um, that, uh, that the web was designed with the wrong goals, but this was the goal it was designed with, was that the user has control and the device has input uh, and we should be able to publish once and render anywhere, and that includes even non-visual media. Um, so at the beginning, the reason there weren't styles is because how are you going to provide styles that are going to be different everywhere? Um, and so CSS was sort of threading the line uh, by allowing you to provide any styles uh, in a way that the device could ignore. And that was the strength of CSS was that it could be ignored. Um, and yeah, maybe we're trying to do things now uh, people would like a different approach to, but I still find that a real exciting proposition and uh, love uh, working on it. Um, I think there's a lot to be said for it. And if we can embrace that, there's a lot we can do. Yeah, I agree. I, I mean, I think, I think the core, the core, uh, I don't know, uh, dream of like, well, you know, CSS should be disableable. You should be able to like navigate and parse the web and do what you're trying to do without CSS, and that should be fine. Um, I mean, we could always, we could go to an audit of like how true that is across the top 100 sites. I don't know, um, but I, I don't know. I, I don't I don't know how much of a, a problem it really is versus people just like standing this up because they have been frustrated at CSS rules in the past and have you know stumbled into some project. I think it's a it's a difficult problem to solve. And not everybody wants to solve the difficult problem. I get it. Yeah, it makes sense. Okay, so let's let's rewind a little bit. So you uh, you kind of you touched on um, the cascade. So I think I think this is a thing that a lot of web devs kind of know about, and they know about like the browser style sheet and like the user agent um, or the user agents, like and then the user style sheet and all the different tiers. But I think it's something that maybe 
we don't think about that much. Like, it's just kind of like, oh, we write our styles and we hope everything is fine. Um, for those on the outside that are kind of have this viewpoint, what would, would you recommend they think about? Do you think, do you think it's worth kind of revisiting like the cascade uh, docs and like looking at how that works and how browsers, you know, uh, instruct the web to render? Look, I, I made it 15 years in my career building websites without reading the specs. Um, that's fine. I don't think anybody should be required to understand the whole system in order to start playing with it and contributing. Um, but if you're interested in sort of leveling up your understanding of CSS and what it can do and um, and how to how how it actually is working internally, that really does help uh, with an ability to then manage it more um, and get what you want out of it with less frustration. So uh, it's a useful thing to learn. I don't think anybody should be required to. I think you should absolutely go to, I don't know, any of the website builders and build your own site right away and don't learn CSS at all. That's fine. Um, let's make things. Um, but yeah, if you want to, if you want to understand it, it will help uh, with managing it. Yeah, I, 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 I've looked at them before, but it kind of been a while. And I, and in my, in doing my homework for this this chat, I was looking through the spec again, and I was, um, I think I'd never considered it before. But the like the reversal of um, priority of the like important rules after after the keyframe animation in the cascade order was like something I hadn't really mold on much. And I was like, oh, that makes so much sense. Like now I understand why important rules work the way that they do like for the user and then the user agent, the browser. Um, anyway, I don't, I don't know. I don't know if there's any like too much there that matters, but yeah. To just quickly summarize how that works. Um, the cascade basically starts with three origins, which are the browser, the user and the author us. Um, and by default users override browsers and we override both. Uh, but from the beginning, uh, it was important that users have the most power uh, to whatever extent they can, and then browsers will have to be able to say what's possible and not. So importance is a way of balancing this power between the three origins, and it creates three new layers that are reversed. So in the important layers, uh, the browser always wins, and users are next, and we're at the bottom of the stack. So we've got these six origins now the important ones and then the normal ones. And then for animations and transitions to work, they get slotted in there as well. Animations are uh, between the normal and important origins. And for the, like, for the author, right? So it's like author, normal, uh, the, the, like, the keyframes, animations, then author important, right? Yeah. And uh, transitions override everything. Uh, so the styles that are happening in the middle of a transition take priority. Um, so you end up with, what is that, eight um, origins at the start of the cascade. Uh, and then we sort of don't think about origins a lot. We're dealing with specificity, which is down inside each origin. Um, but yeah, uh, that idea that, I mean, that idea that importance 
is there as a balance of power instead of being there as a way of um, just like fighting specificity. Yeah, yeah, forcing <laughs> that, your will. Yeah, yeah, right. That changed everything about how I understood CSS. And I didn't even understand that until five years ago, something, right? Um, and so you can go a long time in your career writing great CSS uh, without knowing that. But once you pick it up, it really does sort of shift the way you think about the whole system. And you don't necessarily have to go read the spec itself. The spec is more useful to browser engineers. There are people writing good articles about this stuff. <laughs> yeah, that, it, did, it did lead me to an interesting question of why why is it that, and that, and that those final layers, I guess we could like say layer, layer six, seven, why is it that the browser user agent has final priority in that important stack over the user? Yeah, it's basically just to make certain things not allowed. Um, so if you look through browser style sheets, they only use importance once or twice. Um, and it's just to be like uh, a context menu. You're not allowed to set a display on it. We control those. Um, so it's just little things like that where it's like, you're not allowed to do that. So we're just going to put a limit in. Yeah, yeah. Pro- probably doesn't really functionally matter most of the time. Like, again, the only the only, the only only way you could do it is if the user themselves were specifying some weird thing. Um, yeah, well, and it's it's sort of like things that we just think of as not allowed are sometimes actually specifically not allowed using importance in a browser style sheet. Yeah, yeah. And it's, um, yeah, again, like, I, it probably is one of those things like web does. You, you probably go your whole career never thinking about it, and it would be fine. Um, but kind of on the on right. a, a step up on like the author layers. Now, I feel like there's always been this like, you know, this kind of uh, pervasive view, like you should be never, never be using importance. If you're using importance, you've like gone wrong somewhere else earlier, like you're not scoping effectively, um, stuff like that. With this knowledge and kind of as, as deep in the weeds as you are, do you think that that is true? Or are there cases where uh, the author layer, we should be using importance? I think there are good reasons for it. Uh, I think there are also good reasons that we have had that rule. So um, the cascade was initially designed when uh, style sheets were generally a single file uh, that you could read in 10 minutes. I mean, they were like 100 lines of CSS, right? Um, And so that's fairly different from what we're dealing with now. And we need better tools to manage it, uh, which is part of what we've been working on. both cascade layers and scope are sort of about this, like, well, okay, if we're having so many troubles with scope and with what overrides what in specificity, we should have tools to manage that. Um, So now browsers are adding those tools. Um, Cascade layers shipped earlier this year. Scope is probably coming in the next couple of years. Um, And they help us manage our layering of specificity more in a in a less binary way uh importance is just sort of this cudgel um binary like uh hitting you over the head and layers let you do it more nuanced um and once you start to make that switch importance becomes useful again because you can think of it as the balance of power again instead of the just i need to override something i'm going to throw importance on there which is hitting it too hard on the head. 
you can get some nuance with layers, but then lower layers can say, uh, but this is actually important and it should actually not be overridden by a higher layer. Uh, and we can go back to using importance the way it was designed. Um, probably not a lot, uh, but sometimes I think one example of that is I often see in resets um, adding display none to the hidden attribute. It's a good initial thing to do. Um, it doesn't necessarily happen all it's or that's in the browser styles, but it's easy to override from author styles. So it sort of gets override overridden too easily. Um, I think that's a thing that I would put in the reset with importance uh, because you want that to always win. So it makes sense. And I would throw that into a reset layer that's at the bottom of my layer stack. And the important version will be at the top of the stack and it all works out. So there are cases for it, uh, but it's reasonable to be careful with it. Hey, this is Emily, one of the producers for Pod Rocket. I'm so glad you're enjoying this episode. You probably hear this from lots of other podcasts, but we really do appreciate our listeners. Without you, there would be no podcast. And because of that, it would really help if you could follow us on Apple Podcasts so we can continue to bring you conversations with great devs like Evan Yu and Rich Harris. In return, we'll send you some awesome PodRocket stickers. So check out the show notes on this episode and follow the link to claim your stickers as a small thanks for following us on Apple Podcasts. All right, back to the show. I want to dig more into like how cascade layers kind of help this this prioritization problem and kind of can replace what uh, important may have been leaned on historically. But before we do that, I feel like we should contextualize a little bit on like talking about scoping and selectors and like the specificity of selectors and how that kind of contributes to this conversation as well. Um, so can, can you kind of just, I don't know, kind of set a background for those listeners that maybe don't run a ton of CSS or uh, haven't in a long time? Um, like, what is the hierarchy of selectors? We don't need to do all the details, but just like, how, how can we think about that? And how does that work? Yeah, so um, selectors are the way that we latch on to something into the HTML and say that we want to style it. And that's useful so that we don't have to repeat ourselves all the time. Uh, in the web initially, we had to like write a font tag uh, or a, a font element in the HTML. And we had to repeat that every time we wanted it. Um, and selectors give us this way to just hook in, grab all of the paragraphs, say, and style them however we want. Um, but then in order to determine uh, which selectors take priority, because now I can select the same paragraph in three different ways and give it different colors. Uh, so we're, the browser is going to have to choose one of those colors. Uh, and specificity is really just a heuristic, sort of a built-in guess that the more targeted our selector is, the more likely we want it to win. Um, so if we're selecting all of the paragraphs, uh, that's probably a low priority. And if we're selecting just the ones with a certain class name, that's medium priority. And if we're selecting one paragraph with a specific ID, that's probably the highest priority. Uh, so it's this rough idea that the more targeted we are, uh, the more specific um, we are in our selector, 
um, the higher priority it probably is. Did that answer the question? Yeah, I think so. I think that's, I think that that's perfect. Um, so, uh, is there any, let me think, is there any, like, are there any common pitfalls or, you know, problems that people run into when they're trying to design a web app this way? Cause it, it you know, I feel like every, there's a lot of people kind of in this space, like, oh, well, sure. If this is a thing that I want to apply to every, you know, paragraph or every line item or whatever, like it's easy. Like I, I do a generic selector for that. And then if it's a specific thing, I use the ID, like that seems pretty straightforward, but you know, there's a lot of like tooling and stuff built around CSS. So, um, and, you know, talks and blog posts and all these these common pitfalls that people fall into. What are the big problems that people still end up running into, even if they kind of have that in the back of their mind? Yeah, well, I think one of the main problems comes from the fact that we've got we've got roughly three layers there, right? Um, we can select the element itself. We can select a class or attribute on the element, or we can select a very specific single element as an ID. Um, and there's sort of not much flexibility on the first or third layer. We only have a lot of flexibility on the second one. So we've sort of developed this best practice over the years of like, don't select things by tag, don't select things by ID, only use classes, um, which there's reasons for that because we have more control over classes, but also that's pretty limiting. <laughs> um, and so then we end up in this situation where we're fighting over how many classes and how do we name the classes? Um, and it's, classes are all in the same namespace. So we've lost all of our ability to control what takes precedence because we've decided that the first and the last are too too narrowly defined or we don't have enough control over them. And I get it. Um, But then that's how we end up with uh, best practices like BEM, block element modifier syntax or other syntaxes that are like, how do you name and scope all of your classes? Uh, and we're sort of doing that for CSS. Um, and it's why we added layers and we're working on scope is you shouldn't have to do that in a naming convention. <laughs> you should be able to tell CSS what you mean. What you mean is I'm trying to target something that's in this scope and I'm trying to give it this priority. So we're taking what was a heuristic in specificity. Uh, and we're, that's still going to be there, but we're nesting that inside of layers and inside of scope. So you have some other ways of getting there. Yeah, yeah, cool. Yeah, and it's, it's like a, it's a tricky problem too because it's kind of this like many-to-many mapping you're trying to maintain. There's like a bunch of different ways. It's like, well, do I have a class just for this specific like padding and do I apply that to all those things that have it? Or do I try to like um, set up the hierarchy? So it's only like, well, when it's in within this, in this um, realm, like that is where I care about this padding. I don't want to put the same class on paragraphs and images and everything like those should have separate class hierarchies and all that. Um, So yeah, there's like, there's a lot of complexity in there. And there's a lot of, I think, ideas that sound good when you start working on it. And then like you end up kind of super down in the weeds, like, oh no, I've done everything terribly. And yeah, and part of part of it is is where things get rough is when there's a disconnect between what we mean, what we're trying to convey, and what the browser understands from it or can understand from it. And that's why we're sort of trying to give more of these tools that let you express the meaning. Um, what does what does block underscore underscore element dash dash modifier mean? Um, 
Well, if we can express that as a scope and a selector uh, and a uh, a selector in a where function, for example, like we can we can sort of say, all right, let's actually layer these out. Um, yeah, awesome. So, what I guess, yeah, for, for those listening that don't know, what what is it? What is a scope? How does a scope work? Uh, a scope. It's similar to like right now you can nest selectors. So you can say, I want a title inside of a post. Um, But people have found that a little frustrating because sometimes you've got comments inside of posts and the comments have titles. And then you're like, well, that ancestor tree, that's too far in a post. I want really the post title. I want the title that belongs to the post. Um, and scopes allow you to do that by setting a lower boundary. Um, so instead of just saying a title inside of a post, you can say a title that is inside of a post, but not also inside of a comment. Um, so I can create a scope that says the scope of a post is just from the post to the comment section. Um, and when I'm styling something in there, uh, don't also style it in the comments. Yeah. Yeah. It, um, they are super handy. We had, Adam Ar- Adam Argyle on know, several months ago at this point. Um, he's in the CSS working group as well. I, we we talked quite a bit about scopes and like how they solve this problem. Anyway, um, yeah, it's like one of those things where it's kind of hard to talk about abstractly. Like I think you did a good job with your example there, but you you see it in the wire. Like this is it. This is this is what scopes are for. Like I got it, and it, it feels super good. The code is good. A yeah. thing is sometimes a donut. It has other things inside of it, and we want to style the thing without styling the things inside of it. Right, exactly. Yeah, there, there's this the, again in the web. We we commonly have like a yeah, donut's a great term, like a wrapper thingy, and it's like we want to style this, but stop. Like, don't do anything to the stuff inside. That's I'm bringing that in from elsewhere. It could be a, like user content. Who knows? Like a bunch of different stuff. Um, yeah, so that that is super handy. Okay, and then the other tool you kind of kept touching on, and we we alluded to before, but um, uh, like cascade layers and being able to define those yourself. How does that work? And how is that how is that like helpful in this in this problem? Yeah, there's an at layer rule uh, where you can put blocks of code inside of a layer um, and layers stack up similar to origins. Uh, So in the same way that you start with uh, the normal origin, the three normal origins, and then if you add important to something, it gets flipped into a reversed important origin. Mm -hmm. Layers work the same way. So you define your own layers. I mean, that's the difference is it's inside of the author origin. You can define any layers you want. And in those layers, uh, they stack in the order they're introduced to the browser. So the browser runs into a layer name and it says, ah, this one I haven't seen before. I'm going to add it to the stack. Uh, And you can actually sort of scatter your layers throughout. It's okay if you have a reset layer and then at the beginning of your document, and then at the end of your document, you add something to the reset layer, it will get pulled back up into its original position. Um, So you can say at the beginning of your document, here are the layers that I have in the order that I want them in. And then you can put code in those layers whenever you want, and they'll get slotted in priority-wise. So uh, you can say, I have a reset layer. I've got some defaults in a layer. Defaults will over always override resets. Then I've got a theme layer. Theme will always override the defaults. Uh, and it makes, at that point, specificity only matters inside each layer. So 
uh, theme will always override defaults, no matter what the specificity is. Um, and I've been playing with this, and uh, it means you're a little bit more free to use IDs because you can throw an ID into your defaults and then your theme can easily override it. You don't need uh, to worry too much about like, well, I got too specific in the last layer. Um, that's going to cause problems for me in this layer. Good, good. Yes, that, that, that's a that's a, a great explanation. So I, I feel like the, the it's, I guess, important to point out that when thinking about layers in this way, like I feel like we so often think about CSS in terms of like selectors and subsets of the like DOM overall, but like layers are always applying to basically the whole document, right? Is that? Yeah. I mean, layers sort of, layers sort of don't care about the, uh, about the HTML document. Layers just say when there's a conflict between my styles, uh, which styles take priority. Um, and they sort of, they build on that idea of CSS being, being sort of layered from the browser and then the user and then the author. And they say, well, actually, we sort of have different origins in our work these days. We have the design system and we have the reset and we have the component library. And these are different layers. And let's give them priorities uh, and say how they should interact with each other more explicitly. Yeah, I think I think theming, which is kind of what you what you were using as an example, there is a great example because like it's such a it's such a clear like oh well then we can just swap the layer out and like it does everything it wants. It's easy to go read in, in by itself. Um, it it almost feels like the the layering system like it is functionally useful, but it's really good. It's just like an organizational tool, a way to think about these and like you can make use again like empowering us to start using things like IDs again, which is a handy tool. Like it's nice to be able to go like I want this text here to be bigger than everything else. I, I know it's only ever going to be, it's the title of the page. Like it's the only thing that matters. Um, but we want the, you know, we want to change that if the theme changes slightly or whatever, change the background color, who knows? Um, yeah, so I think that that is a very good example. Um, yeah, I guess, when when were layers introduced to the to the spec? Like when, when, when did browsers start implementing them? Um, they, all of the browsers released them publicly in February and early March. So end of February, early March, they came out in all of the browsers. Awesome, awesome. And are this is like totally out of the scope of what we plan on talking about, but are there are there tools that are like uh like polyfilling layers at like a compiled like a build step for CSS? Yeah, uh, the Oddbird team. Oddbird is the company that I started with my brothers. Um, we built with we worked with the uh, post CSS folks uh, who do like auto prefixer. Um, and there's now a cascade layers polyfill in post CSS. Um, because layers are just above specificity, you can sort of fake them with specificity. It's not pretty, but you can uh, we can pre-process the style sheet and say anywhere there's a layer, let's turn that into a selector with the right specificity. Um, so that's what it does. It doesn't do everything that the spec could do, um, but it gets you pretty far. Nice. Awesome. Awesome. So yeah, there's very little holding devs back from going in and jumping in at this point. Yes. Um, Cause yeah. That, 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 yeah. I would say the main thing is because it's so architectural, it's sort of like the best way to start with it is to rewrite all your styles <laughs> and you don't have to, um, you can start putting layers, uh, layers come under unlayered styles. So the styles you have right now will win over layers. So when you start using layers, start by putting your resets in there, your 
your lowest priority styles go into the layers and you can move over slowly like that. But yeah, they're architectural. So they end up, everything ends up in a layer uh, if you're using them consistently. So uh, I think that's going to be the main blocker for people moving onto them is like they make, they're easier to use on a new site than uh, to do a whole refactor all at once. Right, right, right. So, so if, yeah, so like, but I mean, I don't, I don't feel like it'd be, it'd be too painful to like migrate slowly. Like you said, kind of like pull things out a little bit and you're like, oh, well, I pulled this into a layer. It, we may care about something else that's like up at the top level, not, not in a specified layer. Let's pull those rules in now into like our new top layer. Um, and do that from the bottom, do that from the, from the least important styles to the most important styles, or in terms of what you would consider priority. Yeah. Yes, they're not like breaking anything, like accidentally. Like, oh, oops, I broke this the about page that no one ever looks at because I wasn't thinking about it. Um, yeah, yeah, awesome, cool. Yes, okay. I think we, I think we've painted a pretty good a pretty good picture of of uh, layers at this point. I think the other um, kind of topic in your talk that uh, you talk a little about are container queries. Can you kind of contextualize those a little bit? Yeah, container queries are coming so soon. They're gonna launch in at least two browsers over the summer um, and probably a third browser by the end of the year. But um, container queries, so if you've ever used media queries, which were the basis of responsive web design, right? Um, media queries let you measure the size of the browser window and say, I want to change the styles depending on the size of the window. That's basically media queries have been extended to do lots of other things too. You can check uh, what type of inputs being used. You can check preferred color scheme, all sorts of things. Um, Container queries are a very similar idea and similarly are extending beyond just size, um, but they let you look at something smaller. They let you query an element on the page. So you can say, uh, if my container, if the element's container is larger than a certain size, I want to change how it lays out. So um, say you've got a component that has an image and some text, right? And in a small space, you want it to be image up top and text below. And then as the space gets wider, you want to put them side by side. Uh, right now, it's hard to do with media queries because if you put it in the sidebar or you put it in the main area, it's always looking at the same browser window uh, it doesn't know the size of its container. So you have to get tricky to do it. Container queries would just let you say, my main area and my sidebar are containers. Let me query them. Um, this thing, when it's in a tight space, lay it out this way. When it's in a wide space, lay it out that way. That's what we're getting first, those size container queries. Um, but then also there's lots of ideas for other things you can measure on an element. Can you check its background color? Can you check its font style? Uh, you say, when my container has a font style of italic, M's should have a font style of normal. Uh, so we can sort of toggle back and forth or something. So those are also extending and maybe down the road we'll be able to say, when my container is position sticky and stuck, do something um, or other sorts of so similar to media queries, they'll extend beyond just size, but size queries are what we're going to get first very soon. Yeah, nice, nice. Yeah, I feel like, yeah, that, that the obvious 
kind of benefit there is, is what what you what you spoke about about like you know we, we often have this case where it's like some element that's like way deep in the tree but it like we know when certain media uh like thresholds are hit we need it to like pop in and be a different thing and you just kind of end up with like this gross thing where you have this whole hierarchy that's like kind of poorly defined of like how the responsiveness is supposed to work um anyway i think that'll be a lot cleaner when you can just be like well i know like i can just care about i can think about this element by itself and that's like all i really need to yeah and to tie this back to the very first thing we talked about uh, this is sort of that intrinsic thing and that that thing where we want to not get too explicit so css gets fragile when we have to say okay well when the window is this size that means my sidebar is this size that means things inside of it and we have to do all that logic and put it all in the code and that's when CSS gets fragile, when we have to be too explicit about what needs to happen. And it's much nicer and more resilient um, when we can just say, look, just check what size this space I have and like, just let me change it based on that. Um, and we're being less, every time we can be less explicit or more meaningful, um, uh, we're expressing just the meaning of what we're trying to look for instead of expressing how to get to that meaning, um, all the steps to figure out uh, if the sidebar has enough space. Um, instead of laying out all those steps, we're just saying, just check, just check and let me know. It feels very, it feels very human as well. Like when you're sitting there designing, working, developing on something, it's like I, you're looking at that little element, like this is what I care about. Like I just want to know how wide this thing is and it's got to look different when it hits a certain width. Like I know what I need to do. So I feel like, yeah, it is, it's, it's friend, like having the friendly tools, I think will kind of, you know, continue to break down this, like, you know, CSS is this terrible thing that is always a nightmare. It's like, no, it's better now than it used to be. Like it's, it's incrementally, um, even though there's a wider feature set, I feel like it is less painful than it was, you know, 10 years ago. And it's like getting better every day. Um, yeah. I mean, it's this balance with any tool or any language, right? It's like, uh, there's advantages to simplicity, uh, but when simplicity means you don't have control <laughs> over what you need control over, that's a disadvantage. And so you have to find this balance of like adding features that make it feel simpler by adding a little more. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I feel like they, it is also like it's beyond that. It's also just like more powerful, like these new things, because like I'm thinking of, uh, uh, I guess, like container queries, the obvious use case that jumped out to me was like, oh, well, now if you have like responsive subsets of the like of a website like right, you have like i don't know sections that you can like drag around or something right like you can make each piece behave like you want it to without having to like you know do have crazy selectors that are like watching for these arbitrary element movements you can just have it all declaratively like right right there there's actually a great demo max buck built a great demo on codepen of a container query bookstore um, so it's these book components that you can drag around into your shopping cart or into a featured view. And uh, as you drag them, they change and display differently to fit their uh, context, which is pretty cool. Well, yeah, we've, we've covered a ton. I guess kind of looking forward a little bit more, is there anything kind of in this realm, uh, uh, in, in these topics we've covered of like just, you know, empowering devs and like more responsive design and being able to do things a little bit more intuitively, uh, intrinsically, if we use your, your topic there, is there anything kind of on the horizon that you're excited about or that you're thinking about right now? Yeah. I mean, right now 
so the the main three that I started working on were layers, which has shipped, container queries, which are shipping soon, and uh, we've got to get scope done. Uh, so that's still coming, um, but there's a lot of interest and a lot of progress there. Uh, so that's the main one at the front of my mind is we need to get scope done. Um, but, uh, there's a lot of other interesting things happening, um, uh, that sort of take parts of these features and pull them together. So container queries, container size queries also come with container units, similar to viewport units referencing a container. That's useful for some typography. You can say, when I've got more space, make my font bigger, some things like that. But there's a lot of interest in saying, okay, but I actually want my fonts to have this almost animation-like logic. Um, it's not that the font is going to animate, but I want it to uh, like start growing slowly and then grow faster and then slow down depending on sizes. Um, so we want this like easing curve of font size or something. Um, people like Scott Kellum have been working on this a lot uh, and have tools that sort of make it happen right now, but in almost hacky ways, roundabout ways. Wouldn't it be cool if we could say, here's the rules for transitioning my font size as the container grows. Um, here's the easing curve that it should follow. Uh, I think we're getting to things like that. I think those are going to be possible. I think things like checking if something is positioned sticky uh, and currently stuck. Uh, if something is in the top layer, those are all exciting sort of extensions on these ideas. Um, uh, Scroll-linked animations are happening. People need to be careful with those, but uh, that's fun. Yeah, there was, there was one more I was thinking of. Um, Ooh, color spaces. Color spaces, you should be watching for that. They're, uh, they're part of Interop 2022, which is all the browsers agreeing that certain features should ship in every browser this year. Um, there should be Interop by the end of the year on new color spaces, which uh, are going to be very cool. So keep an eye on that. Awesome. Well, is there any, anywhere else you'd uh, like to point listeners to? Any projects? Any any anything in particular? I guess is the talk uh, like available online anywhere? Uh, I think there's um, a shorter variant of the talk available on uh, the Oddbird website. Uh, Smashing Conference hasn't released video of the long version yet. Um, I'm sure I'll give the talk other places as well. Um, I post on Oddbird. .net uh, when I'm giving talks or um, also articles. Um, and the team also writes some great articles there. So check out oddbird.net. Um, yeah, and I try to take notes on the features that I'm working on. I have a public notebook that you can check out if you're interested. CSS.oddbird.net is just sort of like my thoughts on various features and what I'm working on and what I'm looking at next. Nice. Awesome. Awesome. Well, th again, thank you so much for uh, having this conversation with me. I know we like kind of bounced around and went all over the place, but I, I got a lot out of it. So um, I, I, I really enjoyed our conversation. So thank you so much for joining us. Um, it, it's been awesome. Thank you. Lovely talking to you. Thanks for listening to Pod Rocket. You can find us at Pod Rocket Pod 
on Twitter. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks.